It's Full Preterism, a Damnable Heresy, Part 9. And we've got a few things to tie up in Revelation 21. Uh, I'm going to discuss the sins listed that people that ex exclude people from the kingdom. And then uh, uh, we'll look at the a little bit of 22. And then uh, we're going to deal with the common arguments. I want to deal with the common arguments of full preterists. And uh, hopefully we'll get to that today. Um, at least start that. Because I, I, I was going, I had a lot of book orders. And I, I found my book on uh, full preterism, a booklet, and David Chilton wrote the introduction. And he, he gives the reasons why he became a full preterist. And I want to deal with those because they're very dumb reasons. But let's read some of 21 here. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was also no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And, <coughs> and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. <clears throat> He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then a little later I'm going to deal with um, 22.3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And, uh, the sin of the reading of God's holy word. We just have a few sins to consider that are in the list of people excluded from the heavenly city, which of course is the church. And this is the church uh, glorified. <clears throat> the third category, and we're going by the majority text, the minority text, or the critical text, and the Texas Receptus, uh, at least the Texas Receptus in the book of Revelation is very corrupt. So we, we follow the majority text, and it gives us a uh, list of sinners. Now, every human being, of course, commits sin, even Christians. Consequently, the term sinners here refers to habitual sinners. People who, that's their lifestyle, they're committed to sin. All those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ and repent and follow him are sinners. Whatever non-Christian religion or philosophy they profess, it is rooted in darkness, Satanism, and human autonomy. You know, I remember a lady in a church was leaving her husband, and she said, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do what I want to do. What is that? That's, that's sin. That's rebellion. That's human autonomy. Man apart, from Christ, man apart from Christ is given over to sin, delusions, lies, and wickedness. Christians are saints because they are justified and delivered from the power of sin. Not sinless, but it's not our lifestyle. You're not out going to get drunk. You're not out fornicating and so forth. Although they are still affected by the fall and must fight against the flesh, they swim against the flow of sin and our evil culture. The unbeliever swims downstream in the flow of sin, for he is committed to human autonomy and delights in it. Everything you see in this generation, the transgendered cult, uh, homosexuality, the acceptance of homosexuality and homosexual marriage, all these crazy, insane things which are absolutely wicked and abominable in God's sight, these are all extensions of human autonomy. Human autonomy says, I don't want to do what God says. I'm going to do what I want to do. And the extent of that is, well, I don't want to be a man. So I proclaim myself a woman autonomously. And therefore, you have to accept that I am a woman. That's, that's the height of rebellion and wickedness and perversion. And I expect, you know, we should get ready. There's going to be judgment. Our, our culture and our nation can't be this wicked and get away with it. Of course, we are having economic problems and we have wicked leadership, but that's another story. The fourth description is abominable. The word abominable, the uh, deluctos, refers to people who commit acts that are detestable, disgusting, abhorrent, and thoroughly perverted in the sight of God. It comes from, and I don't know how to pronounce this, it's B-D-E-O, and the O's got the capital O sound. Bedeo. 
Maybe that's where they get the word bidet. But it comes from the verb to stink. <laughs> it's stuff that's gross, disgusting, filthy, abominable in God's sight. It is applied to, in Scripture to especially unnatural, grotesque acts such as homosexuality, bestiality, idolatry, child sacrifice, and so on. You know, it talks about homosexuality in Leviticus, it, and it says it's an abomination. It's unnatural, it's disgusting. And if you disagree with that, well, you're wrong, because God has spoken, and God's always right. It applies perfectly to our modern culture that accepts and even praises homosexuality, abortion, which is nothing less than murdering babies, I mean, how cruel can you be? They tell, oh, we care about the children. We care about public education. They murder children. They murder babies. These people are evil. These people, you should think of them like Nazis. You should think of them like Auschwitz. They murder babies. Cross-dressing, the so-called transgender perversion, where men pretend to be women. They're sodomite perverts and the like. Anyone who pursues a lifestyle that is diametrically opposed to biblical ethics is an abomination in God's sight. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is, is what God says. God is absolutely moral, ethical, right, just, and holy. So the law that he gives us is absolutely right, just, and holy. And if you're out of line with God's law, then you're wicked and you're an abomination. In our day... <clears throat> The Democrats openly advocate, praise, and legalize many such abominations. And the supporters of such satanic beasts love to have it so. They all thoroughly deserve their place in the lake of fire. You know, this, this thing with Budweiser where they have some total pervert, some sicko pervert, this man who pretends to be a woman. Uh, it just shows that our corporations don't have any ethics whatsoever anymore, most of them. They don't follow biblical ethics whatsoever anymore. The fifth category is murderers. John notes the word both here and the next chapter, 2215. In the book of Revelation, there is a focus on those who persecute and murder God's people. 2.10 and 13, 6.10, 11.7 to 8, 16.6, 17.6, 18.24, 19.2. Christians were being persecuted and being murdered by Jews, by the Romans, by the Greeks, and then later on by Muslims and Romanists and communists and all kinds of people. Murderers have no regard for God and his image and thus have uh, hands stained with innocent blood. In our culture, as Christianity has been rejected, there has been a great rise in violent crime. <clears throat> the last 50 years has seen the American Holocaust, where over 60 million unborn babies have been violently and mercilessly murdered in order to pursue. Why do they murder the babies? Why do they do it? They pursue hedonism, materialism, selfishness, and habitual sexual immorality. It's my right to be a whore and murder my baby because I was irresponsible and I was having sex like a pervert. The blood of the innocents cries out from dumpsters, garbage dumps, and crematoriums against this vile wickedness. This is not any less evil in God's sight. When you watch these films about Auschwitz and these films about the Holocaust, six million Jews, at least six million Jews murdered, tons of gypsies were murdered, of course, over a you know, million of Roman, uh, Russian prisoners were murdered. Uh, when you see these bodies of naked people that have starved to death or, or been gassed, and you're just shocked by that, well, what does God think of murdering babies? What have they done? And those who persecute and murder Christians are especially despicable and worthy of hellfire because they are striking out against Christ himself. Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? Jesus said. Who art thou, Lord? And of course, this is Paul's great conversion. In Revelation, the whole land rejoices at the murder of God's witnesses. In 17.6, the great harlot is drunk with the blood of the saints. Whether you think that's the priesthood of uh, 
Israel, whether you think that's Rome, the, the Roman emperors, or the Roman religious cult, or whether you whether, whether you think that's a Roman Catholic Church, it all fits. It is a good, just, and wonderful thing that Jesus will publicly cast all such people into the lake of fire where they belong. Now, the doctrine of hell is a tough doctrine, especially if you're not raised a Christian and all your relatives are pagans. It's not easy. That's a situation, basically, me and my wife are in. But it's just. These people that are murdering babies, these people that are murdering Christians, they deserve exactly what they get. The sixth category, category refers to those who are sexually immoral. The verb used, now this sounds familiar, doesn't pornos. Pornos. And from that's derived the word fornication. And of course, pornography. Denotes those who engage in sexual immorality, homosexuality, premarital sex, adultery, a man who visits prostitutes. Extremely common in the Roman Empire. You have to understand the attitude of the, the Roman pagans. If you have a, a serious relationship with a woman, like a mistress, that's really bad. That's frowned upon. But if you just visit a whore, you're in and out. That was acceptable. That was considered acceptable. And of course, the word whoremonger is derived from this word. Um, see Ephesians 5 5, 1 Timothy 1 10, Hebrews 13 4, Revelation 21 8, and 22 15 in the King James Version. The Bible explicitly teaches that the only lawful place for sexual activity is the monogamous heterosexual marriage bed. That's it. That's what the Bible says. As Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews, marriage is honorable among all, and the marriage bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Hebrews 13.4. Now most people in America would think adultery is pretty bad, although it's acceptable now. It's, you know, people in Hollywood do it all the time. Nobody bats an eye. But um, premarital sex, fornication, that's pretty accepted in our culture. People live together without being married. People go out on a date and, you know, they, the girl might make them wait two or three dates and then they're having sex. It's totally accepted. And then professing evangelical churches, there's a lot of fornication going on. But God says fornicators won't enter the kingdom of heaven. God created one man, Adam, one woman, Eve, and placed them together in marriage for the purpose of intimate communion, intellectual, spiritual, sexual, and of course, procreation. Any physical relationships outside of the marriage, both heterosexual and homosexual, are immoral, impure, and licentious. Adultery is an aggravated sin. Fornication doesn't have the death penalty. The man has to pay a fine equivalent to about 30, 40 grand in today's money. And he has to marry her and he can't get divorced. He can't divorce her. <laughs> That's the penalty for fornication. Adultery has a death penalty unless the, the, man, the man can take a lesser penalty. For example, a huge sum of money. Adultery is aggravated because he adds the element of unfaithfulness to the marriage vow. Homosexuality and bestiality is especially aggravated and abominable in God's sight because they are intrinsically unnatural and perverted. The rectum is an exit for eliminating fecal matter. It's not a sex organ. It is unnatural. It is disgusting. It is perverted. And anybody who denies that, whether Fox News or Sean Hannity or anybody, they're wrong. It's immoral, it's gross, and we should never accept it. And the moment our society accepted homosexuality, why shouldn't accept transgendered? Now, people are taking a stand against the transgendered movement because they're really forcing it, they're trying to force it on the children. Uh, but they should have taken a stand against homosexuality and they wouldn't have had the transgendered thing. These perverts, these people are like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to get away with what they can. They're going to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing the envelope because they want total human autonomy and they demand that the state promote it and they demand that the schools teach it and they demand that you submit to it or you're the one that's evil and need to be persecuted. And I've been saying for years that Christians will be persecuted in the West over sexual ethics. And that's precisely what's happening. It's already happening in Canada and Europe. You know, they're putting pressure on Hungary 
to, you know, basically accept homosexuality, and Hungary doesn't want to, and the, the European Union is putting pressure on them because they're evil. Because of such immorality and impurity, Paul says that the wrath of God comes upon the sins of disobedience, Ephesians 5.5. 5. In the Apostles' list of sins that exclude people from the kingdom of Christ, fornicators are always listed. For example, 1 Corinthians 6.9, Ephesians 5.5. 5. Even though most modern professing Christian churches have a lax attitude toward fornication, premarital sex, Paul says that believers are not to keep company with professing Christians who practice fornication, 1 Corinthians 5.9. Don't eat with them. Don't hang out with them. Bring them up on charges. Take them to the elders if they don't repent. Don't accept what they do. Don't treat it as a light thing. God hates it. Paul informs us that sexual sins, especially unnatural, perverse acts such as homosexuality and lesbianism, are signs of a society and culture that has rejected the God of the Bible for pagan idolatry. It's the acceptance of homosexuality, lesbianism, and of course this transgendered craziness, is a sign of a civilization on the edge of collapse. It's collapsing. God won't tolerate it. And you look at liberal cities where people are pooping on the streets and shooting up drugs and the crime is just un unbelievable. And this happened very recently. I, I, my relatives are in California. Uh, we, was it 2015? We walked across the Golden Gate Bridge. We walked all over Chinatown in San Francisco, me and my, my kids. Uh, and uh, you couldn't do that today. You couldn't do that today. It'd be too dangerous. And that is precisely what has happened in the West that has rejected Jesus Christ for statism. The idolatry of secular humanism, which makes man the autonomous source of meaning, ethics, and salvation, produces max, mass sexual immorality and perversion. And Jesus must cast all such people into the lake of fire to keep the new heaven and the new earth good, pure, and beautiful, peaceful. People are leaving San Francisco. It's unbearable. You can't even park without having your window smashed. The crime is so bad. L.A. is the same. New York City. This is what liberals do. This is what secular humanists do to society. But a, a, a community of dedicated Christians, you don't have to lock your door. You can leave your lawnmower out. No, you can have somebody borrow your lawnmower. You don't have to worry about people stealing stuff. Yeah, occasionally there's a, a, a rotten, phony Christian who might be bad. But that's rare, and then they're dealt with properly and disciplined, and they're kicked out of the church. The seventh item in John's list is sorcery. The Greek word used, pharmakoi, very, sounds familiar, is the origin of our word pharmacy. The word pharmakia, or uh, pharmakon, a drug, potion, or poison, and pharmakias, a magician, potioner, poisoner, or sorcerer, came to be used of sorcerers and witches for mind-altering drugs often accompanied, were often accompanied by incantations, amulets, charms, bloodletting, and even sacrifices. They were used for occult powers over others. And this is still going on today. I mean, you look at the shamans in South America. They have chants, they have songs, they have music, and they have a lot of drugs. And this is, this is true of the Indians in the Southwest and the peyote. And this is true of the Indians in South America. Shamanism is sorcery. And it's very dependent on the use of mind-altering drugs. Now, sorcery is a particularly evil sin in that the sorcerer seeks power over reality and others through unauthorized, autonomous, unlawful means. Okay, I'm going to create reality. I'm going to bend reality. I'm going to bend my mind. I'm going to create my own reality in my mind. The point is that dominion and prosperity is sought without faith and obedience to God. People in their delusion sought answers and power through the dark, mysterious, and supposedly magical powers of sorcery. And Yahweh proclaims divinity and sorcery to be a deceit of the human heart, Jeremiah 14, 14, something vain and against truth, Jeremiah 27, 10, and of course 10, 3, and such practitioners shall not be in the assembly of my people, Ezekiel 13, 9. And it was a death penalty offense in the Old Testament. Their methods cannot save, but only lead to judgment. Isaiah 7, 13 to 14. The hippie movement. 
the hippie movement. Timothy Leary, tune in, turn on, drop out. That culture has destroyed America. It should have been, bow the knee to Christ, believe in Christ, repent, obey God's law, and be covenantly faithful, and we'll have a good culture. But no, tune in, turn off, turn on, <laughs> drop out. God ordered Moses to put to death those who looked for guidance from soothsayers, uh, Deuteronomy 18, 11, uh, 10 to 12. Scripture links sorcery and witchcraft to sexual immorality in Nehemiah, uh, Nahum 3, 4. Sorcerers and witches have often engaged in all sorts of abominable perverted sexual acts as a ritualistic way to receive power from below. The magic of Egypt involved bestiality, and there's proof of this. Alistair Crowley, the magician and Satanist, who's very popular among rock groups and young people today, would combine severe drug use with deviant sexual practices. And this is back in the 40s, 30s and 40s. Sex orgies, homosexuality, and bestiality. His followers thought it was disgusting, but he said it was necessary to attain total autonomy. He connected magic to autonomy. Do what thou wilt. That's the whole law, he said. It's an, Satanism is the ultimate expression of autonomy. But he was kicked out of Italy, by the way, when people found in the local town found out what was going on up, up, on, the ha up on the hill. He was kicked out of Italy. And the guitar player for Led Zeppelin is a big follower of Aleister Crowley and actually bought his house, bought one of his houses. By the way, Aleister Crowley was raised a Christian. So they, they do this in order to derive power from chaos and human autonomy, taken to its logical end, which is Satanism. Mardi Gras, chaos festivals. They all derive from an ancient past of sorcery and witchcraft, seeking uh, revival and refreshment and exaltation through chaos. And God hates all of it. It's totally satanic. Sorcery, witchcraft, and divination is the philosophy of Satan, who is the author of sorcery. All heathen religions have their shaman or sorcerer who supposedly manipulates reality on behalf of those who pay. It's not free. Today, drugs are used to flee reality and create one's alternative reality. Faith in Christ and godly dominion is replaced with drugs, entertainment, sexual perversions, and complete vanity. They reject the Bible as the sole center for faith and life and say, I'll do it my way. I'll create my own consciousness and reality. I do not need or want God or Jesus Christ telling me how to think or what to do. And such thinking is satanic to the core and merits the lake of fire and brimstone. And it, it's a, it's a self-judge, you know, it's like abortion is a self-judging thing. You're murdering your own children. But this is also a self-judgment as well because you destroy... Uh, Drugs in the beginning, uh, a little LSD and pot may help you write a good song, but drugs destroy people, and these people are destroyed, and be, they, make, they become miserable. Look at those people in San Francisco on the street shooting up. It's, it's, it's a form of total slavery to Satan. The eighth sinful characteristic noted is idolatry. Idolatry, in general, is the placing anything above God or Jesus Christ. The first two commandments of the Decalogue are focused on idolatry because idolatry is the very essence of iniquity and is the foundation of all other sins listed. If you're worshiping Christ and the true God, you want to obey them, don't you? You don't want to do anything that would bother them because you're in a covenant relationship. So if you worship idols, you don't care what the true God says or thinks. In the book of Revelation, the idolatry noted is the worship of the beast or the heathen unbelieving state. The state that proclaims itself to be God demands obeisance to its arbitrary unjust laws that are against Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The statist idolatry is the reason Christians are persecuted and murdered. The Jews who followed their political and religious leaders were partners with them in the torture and crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the persecution of Christians. The Roman pagans who worshipped Caesar as God cooperated with the state in the persecution of believers because Christians worshipped and loved Jesus Christ instead of Caesar. You'd get arrested. You're taken before the council. 
You're taken before the, the judgment seat of the Roman procurator. All you have to do, Christian, burn this pinch of incense and acknowledge that Caesar is Lord over all, including Jesus Christ. Sorry, can't do that. All you got to do is offer a pinch of incense to Caesar and acknowledge that he's Lord over Christ. That's all you got to do. And thousands said no, and thousands died horrible deaths because they looked beyond the present realm to the heaven above and the future. <clears throat> In our day of hedonism, gross sexual immorality, selfishness, secular humanism, rank statism, the sin of idolatry leading to a hatred of Jesus Christ and the true saints abounds. People who worship idols hate the true and living God, as well as Jesus, the Son of God, deserve to go straight to hell when they die. They deserve it. The black community, sad to say, are Satanists, and they worship the state. Now, they might go to a black church, but they're Satanists because they're antinomian and they're statists. They had a terrible mayor in Chicago. They got rid of the mayor. They elected somebody more liberal than the mayor, more left-wing than the mayor. You see, people love sin, and they don't, they're so blind, they're so spiritually blind, they cannot see the consequences of sin. Because they hate Christ and Yahweh's perfect, holy, righteous law. They hate all serious Christians with a satanic, beastly hatred. And it will be a glorious day when the glorified mediator publicly condemns their idolatry, lawlessness, and demonic insanity and casts them into the lake of fire where they belong. Joe Biden belongs in the lake of fire. Kamala Harris, belong, Kamala Harris belongs in the lake of fire. Most of the people on the Supreme Court belong in the lake of fire. They're idolaters. The ninth evil characteristic, this is the last one, of the condemned is lying. Everyone holds to a false world and life view, whether Hinduism, Islam, atheism, or modern statism, must uphold that worldview by openly and habitually denying the truth of God's holy, infallible, perfect, sufficient word. The unbelieving Jews accused the Holy Sinless Son of God of being a magician, a bastard, and a false prophet who worked miracles by the power of Satan. And that's in the Talmud. You know, the, the Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition, don't say that. The biblical Christian tradition. Judeo, what does that mean? The Talmud is satanic to the core. The Talmud, which is the main teaching, it's the main thing that the Jew, modern Jews follow. Liberal Jews don't care about anything. They follow Marx more than they follow the Talmud. But the Talmud says that uh, Christians are boiling in hot, boiling excrement, like diarrhea, and they say that Christ is boiling in hot semen. That's what it says in the Talmud. The Roman heathen accused Christians of eating children and drinking blood. Modern secular humanists and statists think Christians are wicked and immoral because they do not accept homosexuality, transgender perversions, and fiat state laws. Same thing as Caesar. We say Christ and his law is above the state. You do not have a right to murder children and say it's part of your body. It's not part of your body. It's in your body, but it's not part of your body. That two-year-old is just as dependent on a mother as a baby in the womb is but you're not allowed to kill the two-year-old. Although there's people that are, yeah, not yet. As you say, they're not yet. There's people that want to uh, allow people to kill the baby after a month or so. Infanticide. They love and practice falsehood, Revelation 22:15, because their status idolatry demands it. They reject the most obvious truths because if they admit the truth, their whole satanic worldview collapses. The, the so-called progressives, the Democrats today, lie. Everything they, virtually everything they say is a lie. Their whole philosophy, their whole worldview is a lie. Everything they do and try destroys society and destroys, destroys the economy and wreaks havoc on the economy and destroys lives and destroys families. They hate children. Oh, we care about children. They hate children. They're the biggest child murderers in history. And public schools are the worst education imaginable, modern public schools. They don't care about children. They care about power. Power. It's all about power. They're Satanists. 
they reject the most obvious truths because if they admit the truth, their whole satanic worldview collapses. Obviously, such wicked, idolatrous, habitual liars belong in the lake of fire, separated from the bride of Christ. So that's that. Now we come to no more curse. I'm going to get to a very good critique here of full preterism in a minute. I have to do some exegesis. Another passage that explicitly contradicts the full preterist paradigm is Revelation 22.3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now, according to J. Stuart Russell, this is part of John's description of heaven. Just a description of heaven. Now, uh, I don't know what others think explicitly about this passage, just because most simply, like I found another book on full preterism where uh, David Chilton wrote the preface, literally two months before he died of a heart attack, his second heart attack. Um, and uh, they just don't discuss these passages, most of them. You know, I, I'd like to see what they say. According to J. Stuart Russell, this is John's description of heaven and has nothing to do with a renewed earth. There are a few serious problems, however, with such an interpretation. First, the statement, there shall be no more curse, cannot be applied to heaven or God's throne room. For it never was affected by sin in the fall. Why would you say that about God's throne room? There never was a curse in God's throne room. It can only apply to the earth. That's all it can apply to. It can't apply to heaven. In addition... The leaves of the trees for healing the nations. The tree for healing the nations. And the tree of life mentioned in the previous verse point us back to Genesis 2.9. In paradise before the fall. And this makes perfect sense if we are speaking of a restored earth, but it does not fit with heaven. Christ's perfect salvation restores the elect and the earth back to the glorious state of paradise, peace, and blissful communion. Why in the world would he be talking about trees up in heaven and the fruit of the trees and the leaves of the trees? The mention of the tree of life is certainly designed to call our thoughts back to Genesis 3, 22 and following. The implication of the account of Genesis is that eating the fruit of that tree would have guaranteed eternal life. The tree in the New Jerusalem provides fruit in abundance each month and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Although this verse is highly symbolic, the question remains. Why would healing be necessary in a totally renewed and perfect earth without sin, sickness, or death? And if I'm a full preterist, that would be my objection. Well, the answer lies in the Greek word here, uh, thera uh, pion, from which we derive the English word therapeutic. The basic idea behind this word is not a medicine which a sick person must take to recover, but rather denotes something that gives health and an abundant, blessed life. The leaves picture the enjoyment and blessings of paradise, not a medicine cabinet for people with disease. If you, under, if you look at the Greek here, it's no problem at all. The tree is bearing fruit and leaves with inexhaustible life and blessings for their roots derive their efficacy from the river of the water of life. Everything flows from the efficacy of Jesus' death and resurrection. Christ endured the curse on a tree in our place. And thus the bloody cross is a tree of life to all believers. The foundation of the cross has attained its consummation. In the eternal city, the Zulan, the Zulan tree is entirely a wood of life. For here in this city, behold, the throne of God and the Lamb, symbol of the eternal rule and dominion and glory of God and the Lamb, in her, in this consummation, in this glorified eternal union of the two, God and the Lamb, with us forever. So, the, the fact that the tree gives us fruit and gives us leaves is symbolic, not of needing to heal diseases, but of bliss, health, paradise, forever. Second, if this verse alludes to an Old Testament passage, it most certainly is Zechariah 14.11, which in context cannot be harmonized with the full preterist view. In verses 8 to 11, we read this. 
And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Okay, so we know that this is not just something natural because everything dry, you know, it's, it's a desert there and everything dries up in the summer. So in other words, the water's going to flow all year round, 365 days a year. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth, and in that dell it shall be. The Lord is one, and his name is one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Gibeah to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now, these verses speak clearly of a time when Yahweh is acknowledged to be the only true and living God throughout the whole earth. Christ will be acknowledged by all nations to be the king. The fact that biblical monotheism will be acknowledged in that day to say that God is one throughout the earth. Remember, at the time that was written, outside of the tiny nation of Israel, everybody worshipped multiple gods. The Greeks, the Sumerians, the Romans, the Babylonians, the Canaanites. They all worshipped many, many gods. And uh, I was talking to a Hindu guy the other day. He's like, oh yeah, we have over a thousand gods. <laughs> Lots of gods. But this is a time when there's everybody acknowledges there's only one true and living God, Yahweh. So this indicates this day indicates a knowledge of divine revelation. If these verses do not speak of the new heavens and the new earth that exist after Christ's second bodily coming, they teach an advanced state of the gospel victory in the new covenant era, which is consistent with postmillennialism. This is the common view of older commentators. For example, John Gill says this. This, and he's talking about verse 9, refers to the spiritual reign of Christ in the latter day. Upon the success of the gospel everywhere, there will be a great conversions in all places. Gospel churches will be set up and ordinances administered everywhere. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. His kingdom will be from sea to sea and from the eastern to the western one. And his dominion will reach to the ends of the earth. Popish. Uh, I copied that down and I, I can't even read it. Popish religion, Mohammedan kingdoms, pagan ones, and all the kings of the earth shall become Christian and submit to the scepter of Christ's kingdom. That's a common Old Testament view. Now with all this in mind, and that, that clearly is the illusion, and that's what the commentators all say. You know, this is the, an illusion to this passage. With all this in mind, we must uh, not only must we reject the view that this passage only refers to heaven, but we must also reject the interpretation that these events all took place by A.D. 70. Was there any nation in the world, or even in the Roman Empire, that acknowledge Yahweh as the only true God and Jesus Christ as only Son as King over the nations in AD 70. Was there anybody? No, not one nation. The immediate and near context explicitly contradicts the full preterist view, and the Old Testament illusion renders the AD fulfillment as impossible. So if you don't want to take this as a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, meaning the consummate state, which I think it clearly does mean, you would have to take it as a very strong post-millennial passage, both of which explicitly contradict full preterism. In the original Eden, there was no sin or curse. And within this paradise was the pre of life. There was also a river that went out from Eden to water the garden, Genesis 2.10. Adam and Eve were sinless, unfallen, and perfectly righteous. But they could not receive glorified eternal life unless they obeyed the covenant of works, Genesis 2, 16-17. Eve gave in to the temptation and they both sinned. They failed and brought sin and the curse, not just on mankind, but also on the whole creation. Genesis 3, 9-19. Um, Genesis 3, 9-19. Christ, the second Adam, 
obeyed the moral law in exhaustive detail, fulfilled the covenant of works, and died as a propitiatory expiatory sacrifice, and thus took the full curse on himself for the elect's sins. Galatians 3.13, Colossians 2.14, Romans 3.21-26. He did it on a tree. If man's sin and guilt is removed, and the non-elect as well as Satan are in the lake of fire, there's simply no reason for the curse on planet Earth to continue, is there? Why would there be? In fact, as we have noted, the Bible explicitly teaches that Jesus' work of salvation will remove the effects of the fall on creation. Romans 8, 19-22, Acts 3, 21, Colossians 1, 14-20, and Revelation 21, 1. Consequently, the picture presented in Revelation 22, 1-5 of a glorified Eden, it's a picture of a glorified Eden, the imagery is taken directly from Genesis 2 and 3. Where God, Christ, and his saints live together in perfect love and fellowship makes perfect sense both exegetically and theologically. Man's history of sin and rebellion is completely over. The elect with their glorified immortal resurrected bodies can take freely from the tree of life because of Christ's sacrificial death and victorious resurrections. The saints are before the throne of God and the Lamb, and they serve Yahweh as dear sons throughout eternity. In the renewed creation, there is no more need of the astrological division of day or night, because in the new glorified creation, rest, sleep, fatigue, and exhaustion are things of the past. Revelation 22.5 and C21.23 and Zechariah 14.7. Twice we're told there's no more night there. There's, there's no need of the sun or the moon. Now, if Revelation 21 and 22 are simply symbolic representations of heaven, what would be the point of noting that night no longer exists in 22.5, and that the sun and the moon are not needed anymore for light, 21.23? These aspects of the physical creation have never had anything to do with heaven, which is purely a spiritual realm. So you see, none of this makes sense if you say it's heaven. Which does heaven have the moon and the sun and trees and fruit? If we interpret these promises purely symbolically as a reference to ethical Christian living or righteousness, as opposed to sinful living, see Romans 13, 11 to 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 to 9, John 1, 4 to 5, 8, 12, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6, Colossians 1, 12 and 13, or the embracing of truth over error, 2 Peter 1, 19, Luke 1, 68, 78 to 79, then they still contradict the full preterist position, for they teach perfection and glorification. Salvation achieved or consummated, not simply sanctification or an unending process in history. That's why these, these kind of passages are so problematic for Paul Preterists. Because they're teaching consummation, they're teaching perfection. And there is no consummation or perfection in the full Preterist system. They can't teach that because they said everything happened by AD 70. And if this is perfection, as we're growing old and dying, and Christians are getting sick and dying and there's murder taking place, then you've got a pretty weird view of salvation. The millennium, or new covenant era, has ended. Revelation 27 to 10. The resurrection of the dead and the final white judgment, th judgment throne, throne judgment has taken place. Revelation 20, 11 to 12. The whole glorified body of Christ has come to the wedding feast. Revelation 21, 2 to 3. Death, suffering, and sorrow no longer exist in the new heavens and the new earth. For the former things have passed away, Revelation 21.4. In the renewed universe, artificial or natural light will not be needed. For we live in the victorious, everlasting day, the day of eternal salvation fully realized. We don't need to eat. We don't need to sleep. Your muscles aren't going to get sore. You're not going to be fatigued. You're not going to get tired. Take it for what it says. Don't twist it. Don't pervert it. The full preterist must ignore all the theological details of these verses, and the exegetical details, and assert only that some people get to go to heaven. The earth, however, remains fallen and full of death, sorrow, bloodshed, tears, wickedness, suffering, rebellion, and pain forever. The dead saint's body remained decayed and in the graves forever. The last enemy, which is death, is never really defeated, even though Paul says that it will be certainly defeated, 1 Corinthians 
Death will be defeated. The last enemy that's defeated is death. They don't believe that. The earth has never returned to paradise, even though Christ defeated Satan, sin, and death. The perfected kingdom is never delivered over to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15.24. The full preterist concept of eschatology is so radically unscriptural. It results in an explicit denial of the bodily resurrection and denies the true biblical meaning of Christ's salvation. It teaches that before the fall, nature was red in tooth and claw. Death, suffering, disease, it all existed outside of Eden. Now, do you like to see an animal suffer and die? Now, I'm not saying animals get to go to heaven or anything, but God doesn't like that. We're told that God cares about sparrows, those little tiny birds. If God cares about sparrows, how much more will he care about you? Death is a part, a part of the result of the fall. Any system of doctrine which denies fundamental aspects of Christian teaching is simply not Christian. Even if some other elements are biblical. Now, I was just notified about a week ago, maybe a little longer than a week ago, that Gary DeMar has embraced full preterism, allegedly. That's shocking, and I hope it's not true. But if it is, he, it, he's, he was ordained PCA, I believe. If it's true, he needs to be defrocked and excommunicated immediately. If it's true. It would be a sad day. Now, when I dealt with Matthew 24, go back around 2000, I think it was, wrote a book on Matthew 24, one of my critiques of his book was that he, he doesn't mention full preterism at all. He just ignores it. You have to condemn full preterism. If you're going to write on Matthew 24, you have to condemn full preterism. He didn't do it. David Chilton did it, but David Chilton fell as well. Remember that Paul, himself writing under divine inspiration, teaches that anyone who denies the real resurrection of our physical bodies from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, in principle has denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because for Paul, our physical resurrection is intimately connected to Christ's physical resurrection. He essentially warns us that full preterism is a damnable heresy. Paul does. Confessional, conservative Presbyterians, and all Reformed Baptists must not must not treat uh, must never treat full preterists as real Christians with minor errors or differences in eschatology. I have close friends that are premillennial. I have many friends that are amillennial. I think premillennialism is most certainly wrong. I think I think it's very easy to disprove. Amillennialism is certainly better. And modern postmillennialism takes elements of amillennialism. It's just much more optimistic. It believes, it believes that the Old Testament promises that are very clear uh, are not to be taken simply as hyperbolic, but more literal. <coughs> but a premillennialist is still a Christian. He's got a mistake. He's got an error. It's not a damnable heresy to be premillennial. Uh, Spurgeon was. But when you deny the resurrection of the body, and you deny the visible, literal, bodily second coming of Christ, you got a problem. You can't even say the creeds and confessions of the ancient church. Now, the book I just, I found this book when I was going through my books, trying to fill an order. And uh, he says in there, well, yeah, but creeds and confessions, uh, you know, you shouldn't treat them as infallible. You, you know, they can make mistakes. Um, and he basically asserts that every creed and confession throughout history is wrong on this issue. They're all wrong. Well, yeah, errors come in, and there are creeds and confessions that are bad. But God has always had a true testimony throughout history. Justification was lost in the Middle Ages quite a bit, but there were always people who held a biblical justification. And you can read, uh, who's it, Anselm on the Atonement? There's a book on the Atonement in the Middle Ages that is thoroughly biblical. Augustine is thoroughly biblical. So, uh, no, we don't say that creeds and confessions are infallible. We don't say that. But uh, this is one of the most supportable doctrines taught in the whole Bible. It's so easily proved. Their errors strike at the very heart of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection, the meaning and the effect of the fall, and the nature of salvation itself. Once you accept an AD 70 paradigm, you've got to redefine everything. 
your eschatology completely has to be redefined. And the problem is, is they eliminate the rapture. That's some spiritual event. It has to be, they eliminate the second coming, the bodily coming. They eliminate the final judgment, the resurrection of the body, the consummate state. They eliminate so many things that are critical to biblical Christianity. It's not Christianity. What they're teaching is not Christianity. It's, a, it's, it's like a cult. It's a heresy. It's a damnable heresy. They deny crucial truths by means of redefinition, similarly to modernists and the cults. Modern, a modernist, you talk about modernists, do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? Oh yeah, I believe in the resurrection. And then you ask them, well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus' physical body came out of the tomb. For them, it's some spirit, you know, his teachings will live on and influence people because he was a great teacher. They redefine everything. The modernist does. That's how they have sodomite pastors and lesbian pastors. The Methodist Church has lost like 2,000 churches in the last couple of years over this issue. They're already corrupt all anyway because they deny inspiration and they're full of Arminianism. But heresy, what, what Satan tries to do is replace biblical doctrine with a false counterfeit that's false and get people to apostatize. We cannot and must not extend the right hand of fellowship to such heretics. For if we do, we participate in their heresies, which Paul identifies as a wicked sin of the flesh. Galatians 5.20. Did you know that? Right next to adultery and fornication and homosexuality and those kind of things, Paul calls heresy a sin of the flesh. People have a tendency, ah, heresy's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. But it is. It is a big deal. And we live in an age of strong biblical and theological decline and an age where Presbyterians are gutless. They're, most Presbyterians are gutless and they're broad. Uh, their view of the Westminster Standards is uh, it's full of holes and slippery. You can believe almost anything you want and get in. There's a few things you can't deny yet. But if, if Gary DeMar is not disciplined by the PCA, if he's still in the PCA, I don't know if he is, but if he's not disciplined by the PCA, the PCA is worthless. Of course, they're already worthless because they, uh, they let men deny justification by faith alone, the federal vision, and they haven't been disciplined. Now, I, don't, I can't think of anyone who's been disciplined by the PCA. <clears throat> well, now we come to, um, how am I in time? We come to uh, common full preterist objections. In order to develop a solid Christian apologetic against the heretical doctrines of full preterists, we would do well to briefly to look briefly at some of their most common arguments. And the most common are as follows. And I'm just going to start this because nobody took, kept track of the time for me. I don't have a watch up here. Number one, and this is one of the reasons given by David Shelton is why he became a full preterist. I'm going to deal with the reasons that David Shelton gives. And it's sad because David, you know, uh, very talented guy. He was he was a charismatic. He always remained a charismatic. He never believed in the cessation of gifts. So that makes you question his uh, wisdom. And then, of course, he uh, became a full preterist and he became a Greek Orthodox. So uh, it just shows that we have to persevere to the very end. <clears throat> Number one, these are their common arguments. And this is one given by by uh, David Shelton is why he became a full preterist. Does not Christ's declaration in Luke 21-22 teach that all Old Testament prophecy would be fulfilled by the time Jerusalem was destroyed? And the answer is no, not at all. It does not teach that at all. In spite of what David Shelton says. This is what the passage says. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Now, vengeance is a reference to God, in reference to God as a common expression for divine judgment. Deuteronomy 32.35, 41.43, Judges 11.36, Psalm 94.1, Psalm 149.7, Proverbs 6.34, Isaiah 34.8, 35.4, 61.2, Jeremiah 46.10, 51.6, Ezekiel 25.12-17, Micah 5.15, Nahum 1.2, etc. Vengeance. 
it's used all the time of God's coming in judgment, whether against Israel or Babylon or Assyria or other nations. It is used for Israel and many other Gentile nations in the Old Testament. Now, this is the question. Does the expression all, as in all things written, have reference to every prophecy in the whole Old Testament, scriptures? Or is it limited by the context and the analogy of scripture to all things foretold in the Old Testament about God's judgment on apostate Israel? That's the question. Well, the answer is clearly the latter. God will bring a righteous retribution on the Jewish nation for all the sins against him, which culminated in the rejection and murder of Jesus Christ. And this interpretation is confirmed by the account in Matthew 23. Let me read 31 to 36. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves, that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. And he's talking about New Testament people here, the apostles and evangelists. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in their, your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the, uh, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In addition, and remember when you see the word all in scripture, you've got to be very careful. All Israel was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. Not every single individual Israelite was. Just vast crowds were. In addition, the full Protestant interpretation is rendered impossible and false by the many prophecies that did not take place by AD 70. And these are just off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more. For example, we have the prophecy in Daniel 12 regarding the resurrection of the dead. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Sleep in the Bible is a metaphor for death. John 11, 11, Acts 7, 60, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 10. Ground of dust, that's a literal Hebrew, ground of dust is a figurative expression for the grave. See Joni, uh, Job 20, 11, and Genesis 3, 19. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's verse 2. Boy, it sounds just like Jesus, doesn't it? What Jesus said about the resurrection. Now, did the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the true God cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea by AD 70, Isaiah 11, 9? No. Did the earth, uh, did the gospel spread throughout the whole earth as yeast leavens the whole lump, as Jesus said, Matthew 13, 31 to 33? No. Was the name of Christ and Yahweh exalted or made great uh, and pure gospel worship established among all the nations or in every place, Malachi 1, 11? No didn't happen yet, by AD 70. Were there Gentile kings and queens that embraced Christ, covenanted with Yahweh, and established a true religion in support of the Christian church with their riches? Isaiah 49.23. Before the destruction of Jerusalem, did that happen? No. There were no Christian kings, no Christian queens, before AD 70. At least none that we know of. Did Egypt become a Christian nation and covenant with Christ before AD 70? Isaiah 19, 19 to 21. Did every tribe or family among the nations turn to Christ and worship God by the time Jerusalem fell? Psalm 22, 27 to 28. Nope, didn't happen. Did all nations, not simply some individuals, worship Christ and serve him before the destruction of Israel? Psalm 86, 9. Mm -mm, didn't happen. Did Gentile rulers from far-off lands, way beyond the Roman Empire, serve Christ and give gifts to support his kingdom in the first century? Psalm 72, 8-11. And the answer is no, it didn't happen. There's passages in, in the Old Testament prophets that speak of, you know, the far-off isles will worship him. Even those areas far away from the Roman Empire, they're going to worship him. They're going to offer obeisance to Christ. They're going to give gifts to the church. Didn't happen yet. 
Did the gospel permeate culture and society and Gentile nations to the point that dying at the age of 100 years old would be considered a cursed thing? Isaiah 65, 20. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Hasn't happened yet, even now. Did God convert the Jews and gather the dispersed among them into Christ's church from Assyria, Egypt, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the island of the sea by AD 70, Isaiah 11, 11? No, didn't happen yet. We're still in the time of the Gentiles. There are some Jews that are converted, but Israel is still a pagan nation. And I know a guy, he was at the Wailing Wall, and he tried to start witnessing to Jews, and the police had to take him away because they were going to beat him to death. No, it's not a friendly place for Christians. Jerusalem is Antichrist. Israel, modern Israel, is Antichrist. Still, to this day. And even conservative Jews, like Ben Shapiro, he's an Antichrist. He explicitly thinks that Christ was a phony. He says it openly. Do I agree with a lot of what he says politically? Yeah. He's got some great things to say. Religiously, he's satanic. Jordan Peterson, religiously, he's satanic. Jordan Peterson believes the Bible's full of myths and it's not true, but it teaches us wonderful things that we should follow. Well, if it's, it's a myth and it's not true, do what thou wilt. Aleister Crowley's correct. <clears throat> the assertion that all the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled by AD 70 is obviously not true. It's obviously not true. Such an assertion is ludicrous and absurd. And if, if, and if the full preterist thinks I'm not being correct here, let him interpret all those passages and see what he does with them. Who are the kings and queens that gave money to the Church of Christ out of their own riches? What nations adopted the law of God? What nations flowed into Jerusalem? Now, if we include, and I'll end with this, um, if we include the explicit eschatological promises in the New Testament, the full preterist argument is further crushed by the biblical evidence. The following events would have had to occur by AD 70, or at AD 70, number one. A literal bodily return of Jesus from heaven to the earth, Acts 1, 9-11, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Did that happen yet? Have you seen Jesus? He has a human body. He has a real body. He's still the theanthropic mediator. He still has a human body. Have you seen him? No. Two, the literal body resurrection of all men out of their graves has not occurred yet. John 5, 28-29, 11, 11-24, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 55, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 16, Revelation 20, verse 13. The Bible teaches a literal resurrection out of the tombs. Hasn't happened yet. If you go to graveyard and dig up a grave, you'll find a dead body in it. Number three, the rapture of the living saints to meet Jesus in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Hasn't happened yet. Four, the final judgment of all men. The universal judgment, Revelation 20, 11 to 15, Matthew 25, 32 to 41, hasn't happened yet. Number five, the renewal of planet Earth, which removes all the effects of the fall, Acts 3, 21, Romans 8, uh, 19 to 22, Colossians 1, 20, Revelation 21, 1, hasn't happened yet. Number six, the full defeat of death as the curse is banished from the new heavens and the new earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 26, uh, and 54, Revelation 21, 4, and 22, 3. Has death been defeated? Totally? I mean, in fact, we know it's been definitively defeated when Jesus walked, died and walked out of the tomb. We know it's progressively being defeated in history, but has it been totally defeated? And the answer is not yet. That's the last thing that'll go when Christ returns. Death will be gone. Number seven, Satan and the demons, as well as all unsaved people, are cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 10 to 15, Matthew 25, 32 to 41, etc. Has that happened yet? No. Number eight, the fully accomplished kingdom is handed over to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Has that happened yet? No, people are still being saved today. The church is still being spread today. So one must either believe that all these clear, what all these passages that are very clear teach, or one must twist them and redefine them out of the great truths that they actually do teach. And they do, they do all this heresy, 
all this lies, all this garbage, simply because they think the time indicator in Matthew 24, uh, they don't make a distinction, and I'm going to consider this next week when we come back, Lord willing. That'll be my next point. They don't make a distinction between coming and judgment and a literal bodily coming. Christ came in AD 70 in judgment. Did he bodily return to earth as he's promised to do? As the angels told the apostles in Acts 1, 9 to 11? No, hasn't happened yet. So, you know, if you're a full preterist, you need to repent. You need to repent. I like a lot of uh, what Greg DeMar, uh, Gary DeMar says in his book, where he talks about Matthew 24. Um, and I wrote a book on that years ago. Um, and I agree that a lot, you know, a lot of things have happened already. And the church ignores this. But to take that and deny the resurrection of the body and deny the bodily return of Christ and deny the the, the full resurrection of the dead and the, the, the second coming and the, the final judgment and, all, and the eternal state, deny all these things is insanity. But we'll continue, Lord willing, next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that Christ will come back bodily, that we will have resurrected bodies that cannot die, that will be perfect, that we don't have a Gnostic, Neoplatonic salvation of the full preterists. We do thank you, Lord, that we get to rule with Christ forever, that we will never die, there will never be any sickness, there will never be any pain or tears. The earth will be perfected and made back to paradise. We thank you for that, Lord, all accomplished by your dear Son. We bow the knee to Christ as our Lord and Savior. We bow the knee to him. Oh, Lord, help us to be obedient, to be covenantally faithful in appreciation of this amazing work of salvation, for we fall short all the time. So help us, Lord. Fill us with the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.